Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, I don't know what has been the hardest part of this pandemic for you, but I can tell you that for a certain three-and-a-half-year-old that I know, the hardest thing has been the parks and the playgrounds that were closed. My son loves parks. He needs parks. He craves parks. And to rub salt in the wound, if you look out the back window of our house, you can see a park. And so every day at breakfast, he'd sit there and he'd look out the window and he'd say, Mom, Dad, can we go to the park today? And every day for months, we would have to say, I'm sorry, buddy, they're still closed. But then... June 27th, a day that will go down in preschooler history as one of the greatest days ever, the parks were reopened. So I I took my son to a park and I actually caught his reaction. I said, son, what is it? What what are you feeling right now? And this is how he responded. The park has opened up. We have trained the join the park as a team. We can join the park as a team. (laughs) When was the last time that you were so happy you spontaneously burst into song? Think about that. What would make you so overjoyed that you would sing? If you're going to write a song, a happy song about something, what would it be about? A beautiful day, falling in love, friendship, good food. What would you sing about? I find it really interesting when I read the book of Psalms, the songbook of the Bible, I find these songs that they wrote about an unusual subject, God's law, God's law. And they're they're not even just these kind of stoic, serious songs like I will obey your law kind of thing. These are passionate songs. Let me read some lyrics to you. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. I open my mouth and pant, longing for your commands. Does that make any sense to you? I mean, seriously, why would someone sing like that about God's commands? But what about them could make someone so happy they would sing for joy? We're in the fourth week of our series called The Big God Story. We're telling the story of the Bible from start to finish, from creation to new creation. Uh, One of the cool things about this series is that it's not just for the adults in our church. In Kids World, we're actually each week covering the same stories that we're covering uh, in the the main uh, session of church. If you've got a kid in your life and you'd like to find those lessons, you could find them at ccclife.org slash kidsworldonline. I'd highly encourage you to check them out. Well, today we're going to be picking right up where we left off last week. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is the second book in the Bible. We're going to be in chapter 19. Uh, Last week, we looked at the most important event in Israel's history, the event of the Exodus. This was when God sent Moses to rescue the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. So a slave with a speech impediment went up against the leader of a global superpower and the slave came out on top. God made a way where there was no way. 
But now here's where the story continues. Moses has led the people from the shores of the Red Sea all the way to Mount Sinai. And this is what happens when they're at the mountain. Exodus chapter 19 says this. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you out on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you must speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Skipping down to verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain, a a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. Let's thank God for speaking to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is one of the most dramatic, iconic, awe-inspiring moments in the Bible. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be there? Seeing the God of the universe descend on the mountain, the lightning and the whole earth shaking. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be Moses walking up that mountain to speak with that God face to face? We're going to talk about the conversation that Moses had with God up there. The conversation actually covers multiple books of the Bible, but we're going to try to sum it up under two big headings, the two things that God and Moses talked about. Here's the first one. They talked about the law, the law. Now, from our perspective, it is really tricky to understand the giving of the law and why it was such a big deal. Uh, when, if you've ever seen a, a movie uh, about the Exodus, a story of Moses, they all end in the same way, whether it's uh, Ten Commandments or the Prince of Egypt or that one where Moses is played by Batman. They all get to this place where they've come out of, of, of slavery in Egypt. They come to the mountain and Moses goes up on the mountain. It's so dramatic. And he comes down with these two tablets of stone. And then it just sort of ends there. The credits roll. It's so clear that the directors have no idea what to do with this that they just sort of stop the story there. It's almost like they're saying like, really? This is where the the climax of the story goes in the Bible? Uh, We'll just wrap it up. Like God did all of this dramatic stuff. He parted the Red Sea. He sent the plagues. He led them with a pillar of fire just so he could give them a list of rules. And the rules, to be honest, they're kind of obvious. 
Like, I don't think there was any Israelite who was looking at the Ten Commandments and saying, what? Are you kidding me? We're not allowed to steal stuff anymore? Gee whiz, who knew? Lying. No lying. Hey, guys, did you see this? We're not allowed to lie anymore. No, I'm telling the truth. That's what it says. And I don't think, I don't think God did all of this just so he could let us know, like, he's not really cool with murder. Now, the Ten Commandments, they're, they're just the beginning. There, there are just over 600 different laws in the Old Testament. Uh, some of them are less obvious than the Ten Commandments. But even so, why is go- the giving of the law such a big deal? Like, why would Hebrew poets, hundreds of years later, still be writing songs about this event? Let, let, let me give you three things that might make sense out of the whole situation, okay? First is this. The law, it turns out, is more like vows than like rules. The law is more like vows than like rules. Uh, so this past week, Michelle and I, we celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary. And so our kids were asking, uh, you know, what was it like when you got married? What was your, your, your wedding like and your reception like? And so we were telling them stories. So we told them the story about how we had a, a trumpet in our wedding uh, and we didn't tell the groomsmen that there was a trumpet in the wedding. And so it was right behind them. And as the wedding march began, you know, it sounded out and they all jumped out of their skin and that, that made us all laugh. We, we told them the story about how at the reception, our, our DJ, you know, was trying to have fun. So in the middle of the, the dancing, he brought out hula hoops. And so we've got all, pictures of all these people in their fancy, you know, gowns and dresses and, and suits and everything, including my wife in her wedding dress, you know, doing the hula hoop. We, we told them about the food we ate and the cake. And we told them especially just how amazing their father's hair looked back then. But what if when we were telling them about our wedding, we told them about the words that we said to each other. I, Clayton, take you, Michelle, to be my wife. I promise in covenant before God and these witnesses to be your faithful husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And if my kids said, what what, what are those words? And I responded, well, those are the rules. Those are the laws of marriage. I need to follow those laws. That would be a super weird way to talk about your wedding vows, wouldn't it? In some ways, it kind of makes sense. I mean, they kind of are the rules, you know, like as Michelle's husband, I am obligated to keep those vows, but it doesn't seem to capture the significance of what those words meant when I said them or what they mean to me now. I much more likely say, you know, those are, those are my promises, that's, that's my commitment. That is how I intend to love your mother for the rest of our lives. It means something really deep to me. It's kind of unfortunate that this section of the Bible got labeled the law. Because at its heart, it's not primarily about the rules. It's a covenant. It's a commitment. When Israel arrived at Mount Sinai, they were arriving for their wedding day. God was promising, making promises to them to be their faithful, loving God. And they were making promises to God to be his faithful, loving people. And by making those promises, they were united. God and his people. These were their vows. The second key to understanding the law is this. The law is the result, not the cause of salvation. It's the result, not the cause of salvation. This is a really common misunderstanding that people have. People assume that the law is kind of like the entrance requirements for salvation. Like if you check off all these things, you can kind of come in the doors. 
But it's really, really important to notice the order of things here. Look at verse four. God starts when talking to Israel by saying this, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, what I did, past tense, and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. God is talking about something he has already done for them even before he starts talking about the law. He has already saved Israel. So you think about it, when when Moses came to the Israelite slaves, he didn't say, okay, here's the list. If you can do all these things, you just let me know, I'll come back and then God will rescue you from slavery. No, he said, God's here to rescue you. We're gonna go, we're getting out of here. God's saving us. There wasn't a bunch of conditions they had to do first. This is so, so key. There are some of you who wonder if you can really be saved. There are things in your life that you have done, things you failed to do, that just eat you alive. They fill you with so much regret and guilt and shame, you're not sure what to do about them. And deep down, when you ask the question, you start to wonder, you say, does God really want me? Would God ever actually welcome someone like me? Am I good enough for God? If that's you, you need to hear this. God does not save us because we are good enough. God saves us because he is good enough. God does not save us because we are good enough. God saves us because he is good enough. God doesn't say, all right, you get yourself cleaned up and then you can come to me. He says, come to me just as you are, as messy as you are, you come to me and I'll clean you up. God doesn't start by saying, here are the laws. He starts by carrying us on eagle's wings and bringing us to himself. If we don't get this straight, if we don't get this order right, it mixes up how we read the whole rest of the Bible. And more importantly, it messes up how we see ourselves and how we see God. Assuming that we've got to keep earning and proving ourselves just so that God will love us and save us. This is really, really important. God starts with salvation before he moves to the law. Now, it's also important to get the other half of that because while the the law is not the cause of salvation, it is the result of it. The Israel was saved from slavery, but it wasn't like, okay, now you can just do whatever you want. Just, Just do what you desire. That would have led to a totally different kind of slavery. Instead, what God is doing is he's saying, you're free so that I can shape your lives and your society to be the way I desire it. I'm actually gonna teach you how to live a life that actually gives life. It's actually an incredible gift to be given the laws of God. Sometimes people talk about God's commands like it's this difficult burden, you know, like it's this joyless duty to obey. something that limits your freedom. But the reality is obedience is a gift. The the law is God's way of saying, here is a way of life that you actually would want to live. So when when God says, do not lie, what he's saying underneath that is, did you know you can actually live a life of truth? Where you don't have to hide anymore? Where you don't have to twist the facts and manipulate information just to feel safe like you're going to be okay? You you can live a life of truth. When when God says, do not commit adultery, He's actually saying, did you know that you can experience true faithfulness in life? That you can know the intimacy and the closeness that comes from being committed to one person for your entire life, the openness in that relationship. Did you know that's possible? You can live a life of faithfulness. When God says, do not covet, what he's saying is, did you know you can be content? That you don't have to compare yourself to other people, look at what they have and feel like something's missing. 
You don't have to wonder, you know, if I just had one more thing, then I'd feel okay. You can be content with what God has given you. That is possible. See, the law is actually a gift. That God's commands, when you hear them, they sound like have-tos, but when you actually live them, they feel like get-tos. This is the life you want to live. Now, of course, God's law imposes structure and limits on us, but so does sheet music. And it's far more likely that you're going to play something beautiful if you actually learn to read the music than if you just kind of randomly press keys on the piano. Obedience to God's command is not the cause of your salvation, but it is the good result, a tremendous gift that you are given because of salvation. This leads to the third idea that will help you understand the law. The law describes a society seeking shalom. Allah describes a society seeking shalom. Over the last three weeks, we've been talking about this idea of shalom. It's the the biblical word for wholeness and harmony and completeness. In every aspect of life, it's, it's God and humans and creation all coming together in peace. We've used this simple chart to describe the four aspects of shalom in the Bible. It involves God's people in God's place, living out God's purpose and enjoying God's presence. This is what the Garden of Eden was. This is paradise. This is the way things are meant to be. Now, human sin destroyed all this. We rebelled and all of this unraveled. We were cut off from these things and it started to shatter. But the story of the Bible, this is the the big picture plot of the Bible is how we get back to this place. How does God bring back shalom to his world? It began by God going to Abraham, a a man, and saying that your family is going to be the people that will eventually become the nation of Israel who will bring shalom back to the world. I'm going to do it through you. So when God goes and rescues Israel from slavery, that's what he's doing. He's reclaiming his people. And then when he gives them the law, he is reteaching them his purpose. He's saying, this is what you are to be in the world. Look at what God is doing in verse six. He says to them, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel's purpose was to set an example for what a kingdom built around God would actually look like. This was humanity's original assignment. In the beginning, to go into the world and to fill it with God's love and beauty and goodness and justice to to build a society that reflected what God was like. The the problem, though, for Israel is they have no idea how to do this. They, They have been slaves for 400 years. They don't have a government. They don't have an economy. They have no laws, no religious institutions, nothing. They've been commanded by other people. They haven't established any of this culture for themselves. And so they're supposed to be this example to the world, and they have no idea how to do it. And so what God does in the law is he says, let me describe it for you. This is what it would look like if you build a world around me. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses says the result of this is going to be people from all around the world seeing that example and wanting to follow God. It says this, observe these laws carefully, for they will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations around you, who will hear all about these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws that I'm setting before you today? If Israel experiences shalom, then the other people of the world will say, hey, we want to be like that. 
What if we build our lives and our culture around that God? That would be amazing. Israel is an alternative to the kingdoms of the world. Now, that's the big picture. The hard part is when you're reading the law, getting down to the specifics. When you run across one of those 600 and something laws and you're like, what am I supposed to do with this? It's really difficult. So let me give you uh, some questions to ask whenever you come across a biblical command. I want to answer the question, how do you read an Old Testament law? Five questions to ask. First is this, what action is being described? What action is being described? So when you come across a law, sometimes, I mean, this sounds so basic, but you actually have to ask the question, what would someone have to do to obey this command? Like describe what someone would do. Now, sometimes the challenge with that is that the the actions are um, embedded in an ancient culture that we don't understand. So sometimes we have to learn a little bit about the culture to figure out the full implications of this. So take, for example, this law in Deuteronomy 22. It says, when you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. Okay, so you ask the question, what action is being described here? Saying, okay, if you're building a new house, uh, you need to uh, build a, a little railing, a parapet, a wall around the edge of the roof so that people can't fall off the roof. It's basically a, a, a construction or a safety code that, that's uh, being imposed on people as they build their homes. Now, to understand this, it makes far more sense when you realize that in that culture, their roofs were flat. They didn't have pointed roofs like most of us do. They had flat roofs, almost every one of them. And because of that, it was really common, not just to have that be the top of your house, but to actually have it be a functional living space. You actually did things up there. You worked, you ate, uh, you had people over, guests would come up and and, and, uh, be with you on your roof. And so putting that parapet up was a way for you to protect yourself uh, or protect your guests from falling off of the roof. Now, how do you figure out details like that in a culture that you don't know? Uh, some of it, you might be able to pick up from the context, okay? So maybe in this law, you, you realize, you know, okay, that makes sense. Maybe, maybe they actually do something on the roof, so you kind of pick it up from the, the, the context. For other things, you need some extra help. Now, there are whole books called cultural background commentaries that are very helpful for this, but a lot of them are, are pretty thick, pretty big. They're more scholarly types of things. The easiest way to get help on stuff like this is to get what's called a study Bible. Study Bibles are Bibles that include not just the text of the Bible, but also footnotes and explanations that are written by experts and scholars to tell you things you might not necessarily know. So as a church, we frequently recommend that people pick up the NIV study Bible. It's a really good one to start with. It will really help you in your daily Bible reading because it'll give you those hints of the things that you might not have realized. I have found when I study the the Old Testament commands that a lot of times when I come across a command that's really strange to me or maybe a a command that's really troubling to me, like I'm like, man, that's, that's super harsh. I don't get what's going on there. That when I learn about the cultural background, it clears up maybe 70 to 80% of those cases. It's like, oh, that's what it's about. And oftentimes I find it is remarkable how countercultural the laws Israel had were. It actually describes a way of life that is much more gracious and forgiving and, and, and caring for people than the cultures around them. The second question to ask is this. What principle stands behind this law? So the the laws are not just supposed to be uh, specific, like, okay, this is what you do when you have a a roof and a parapet. It's supposed to illustrate a broader principle that's supposed to govern your life. So in the case of this law about the the wall on your roof, the, the principle behind it is probably something like this. When you do something that might expose another person to risk, you should take precautions to protect that person 
because otherwise you would be responsible for their injury or death if something happened to them. Or to put it more simply, protect others from danger you create. That's the principle behind this law. I have found that when thinking about the principles behind laws, it helps to remember that Jesus said all the laws can be summarized in the two big laws, okay? Love God and love your neighbor. And so I asked the question, okay, what about obeying this command would help a person love God more or express love for their neighbor more? And that usually helps clarify why it's there. Third question to ask is this, what would happen if everybody did this? So you got to remember, Israel's law was not given to just individuals to follow. It was given to the nation as a whole. And so the question is, what would this nation look like, this society look like, if everybody actually obeyed it? What would happen? So if everybody followed the parapet rule and they had these walls on their roofs, what would happen? Well, for one thing, there would be a lot less people falling off roofs, obviously. Um, But if you applied the principle more broadly of looking out for other people, protecting them from dangers in, in areas you're responsible for, it would lead overall to a reduction in accidental injury and death. And of course, the ripple effects that come out of there, the the grief and the guilt that would result from those things. It would also foster community. When people feel like the spaces they're in are safe, they're far more likely to feel welcome in those spaces. So if you go up on someone's roof and then you see this little wall there, you realize, oh, this person's looking out for me. They're making sure that I feel comfortable and safe in this area. The little wall might as well have a sign that says, I love you, neighbor, on it, because that's what it means. Ask the question, what would result in society if everybody followed this command? Fourth question is this, how does Jesus change this law? We are not ancient Israel. We live on the other side of Jesus. And as we're gonna find out as the story progresses, Jesus changes a whole lot, especially the Israelite law. Uh, The best way to think about it is thinking of Jesus as kind of a new operating system, an upgrade for your phone. So when you uh, upgrade your phone to a new system, you know that there are gonna be some things that are really similar from the old system to the new one. There are gonna be some things that are similar but have been changed in some way. There are gonna be some things that are eliminated, some things that are added. Some some things are gonna be uh, carryover and some things are gonna be different. So the question is, how do we figure out from the Old Testament law to people after Jesus, what carries over and what's changed? Uh, To dig into that would probably take an entire another sermon, but the simplest way to answer it is this. When we look at the New Testament, we find that it addresses many of these laws and gives us guidance on them. In general, the pattern we find is this. When there are laws that are about religious ceremonies, things like sacrifices and priests and uh, uh, celebrations and holidays and things like that, Jesus has completed the purpose that those things existed for. He has, he has fulfilled that. Uh, he has, he has uh, accomplished the purpose that those existed for. And so in general, those things don't apply to us. When it comes to things that are related to Israel's government and their economy, um, those are things that also don't apply directly to us as New Testament believers. We're not supposed to try to impose Israel's government on uh, modern governments or something like that. Uh, But what it does is it tells us the kinds of things God cares about, the kinds of things he values. And so as we pick up those values, that informs how we approach public issues in our own world. The laws that are more about personal morality, for the most part, they kind of apply to people unchanged. So things like don't steal, don't lie, don't kill, sexual ethics. uh, Those have not really changed dramatically moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament in Jesus. So what does this mean about the parapet law? The the parapet law is not one that we have to literally follow. If you don't have a wall around the edge of your roof, you are not disobedient. You don't need to confess that to God. 
But the New Testament does say a whole lot about looking out for the well-being and safety of other people. So for example, in, in Philippians 2, it says this, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. We are supposed to take this stance in the world. We're supposed to say, what is it that I could do, even if it's inconvenient to me or extra work for me, that puts the needs of another person ahead of my own? Even if I have to sacrifice something, how can I make sure that the people around me are cared for and safe? How can I protect others, especially from risks that I put them in? Here's the final question to ask when reading an Old Testament law. How does this principle apply to me today? Always when reading the Bible, eventually you need to get to the place of not just saying, what does it mean, but what should I do? Is there some attitude or action that should change in me because of this? Now, for this parapet law, there's probably a, a number of different ways that are different for each person of how it applies in your context. So a few examples. If you've got people coming over for dinner, you, you want to ask them something like, hey, do you have any food allergies? So that you can protect them from any food that you might make for them. When you're driving on the road, it means you don't tailgate people. You don't drive recklessly because you're looking out for the safety of the people around you. In the wintertime in Illinois, we've got to put salt on our sidewalk so that people don't slip uh, on our property as they come through. If you manage a business, it means providing safe working conditions for your employees. In our current pandemic, this is the reason why we social distance. It's the reason we wear a mask because we don't know if we're exposing the other people to the risk of the virus, not realizing we're spreading it. We, we do all of these things because God asks us to love our neighbor. And one of the ways we do that is protecting them when we can from the danger that we create. Th this is the way you apply a biblical command. You work through this process until you say, how does this help me love God or my neighbor better? Now, when Moses was up on the mountain, he didn't just talk with God about the law. He also received instructions about how to build the tabernacle, the tabernacle. Now, to understand how important the tabernacle is, it helps to see how much space it takes up in the Bible. So it, it, describing the tabernacle takes up 15 chapters, almost a third of the book of Exodus, the entire next book of Leviticus, and portions of the next two books of Numbers and Deuteronomy. There are, there's so much description of how to build the tabernacle, how they put the tabernacle together, what happens in the tabernacles, the rule governing the tabernacle. This is a major, massive deal. Why is that? It's because the tabernacle is God's home. It's his home. It's his house. It's where he lives. Now, if you just saw the tabernacle, it would look just like a, a big tent. That's basically the description of it. It had a big outer courtyard, and then it had two, uh, an inner tent with two rooms in it. The innermost room was called the most holy place, and that was the place where God lived. That's where God's presence manifested for Israel. Now, I want you to think about this. What would it have felt like to the Israelites standing around Mount Sinai when they heard this description of the tabernacle? Where do these recently freed slaves go at the end of the day to sleep? They go to a tent. They go to a tent. So when God says, hey, you better make me a tent too, what he's saying is, I am coming to be with you. I am meeting you right where you are in the place where you live. Now, eventually, Israel would settle in the promised land and they would build a permanent building, the temple, uh, to, to function the same way the tabernacle did. But the idea was the same. God was saying, I'm moving into the neighborhood. I'm gonna be down the street from you. I am going to be with you. That's incredible. Because you gotta remember, 
one of the key pieces, probably the most important piece about shalom is God's presence. When God rescued the people, he formed a people for himself. Then when he gave them the law, he taught them their purpose. And now with the tabernacle, he is giving them the gift of his presence. The tabernacle is the new garden of Eden. Now, if you wonder if I'm just kind of being clever by saying that, you should actually listen to how the tabernacle and the temple were decorated. So the curtains and the walls of the tabernacle and temple, you know what was on them? Carvings and and pictures and and weavings of trees and flowers and fruit, kind of like a garden. In the center, in the, the holy place, the room at the middle, there was this golden lampstand. And you know what it was shaped like? A tree, like the tree of life. So much in the, the t- tabernacle and the temple was covered in gold. And the priests, they, they had these precious stones that were woven into their uniforms. And when you look up the, the description of Eden in the first chapters of the Bible, you see that it talks about there being gold and the same precious stones present in the garden. And then most importantly, when you got to the curtain that stood right in front of the most holy place, the place where God's presence was, on that curtain was an image of cherubim. The, the heavenly creatures that defended the way into the Garden of Eden. The, the way to get access to, to God and the tree of life. The tabernacle was the new garden. Israel was getting back what Adam and Eve had lost. Access to the presence of God. And that changed everything. I mean, how could it not? How could it not? I want you to imagine that next week, Congress passes a law. Surprise, surprise, they actually pass something. And they pass a law that moves the capital of the United States from Washington, D.C. to, let's say, DeKalb, all right? So now DeKalb is the capital of the U.S. That's gonna change the city a little bit, don't you think? There's gonna be a lot of things that are different. The people of DeKalb are now gonna have a new access to power and privilege they didn't have before. That they are going to have a prestige worldwide that comes from everybody in the world knowing the name of their city. There's also going to be some new uh, challenges and restrictions. They're going to have to deal with the presence of uh, the Secret Service and the military that are there and extra security at buildings and at motorcades that shut down traffic every once in a while. It's going to change everything about what it looks like to live in DeKalb. Same thing happened when God moved into town in the tabernacle. The the high king of heaven, the Lord of all the earth, placed his palace and his throne right there among his people, Israel, and life for them would never be the same. Turns out the, the biggest challenge of having God in the neighborhood is that God is holy. It means that that God is totally separate and set apart from everything that is sinful and everything that is evil, everything that is corrupt. God is completely pure. God is so holy that sin cannot enter his presence. It's not because God can't handle our sin. It's actually because sinners can't handle God. Being in God's presence is like walking on the surface of the sun. It would annihilate a sinful person. And so it creates a, a really big problem. It's actually a problem that presented itself right from the beginning. When Moses went up on the mountain, right after Israel had sworn their promise to obey God, their vows, their, their wedding ceremony, And Moses goes on the mountain to hear how to build the tabernacle. This this place where their groom is going to to live with his bride. While Moses is up there, the people are down at the base of the mountain. They, They start to get impatient. Moses is taking a while. It's been days. It's been weeks now. And what do they do? They actually form a golden calf, an idol, and they start bowing down to worship this God. 
And Moses hears about it and God reacts in the same way that a husband would react if he came back to the honeymoon suite and found that his, his new bride had invited another man to be in their bed. From the very beginning, on the wedding night, the God's people showed that they were not pure. They could not live with a holy God. And it's not just their problem. It's our problem too. We are always substituting God for some lesser lover. And so it raises the key question, how do you live with a holy God? How do you live with a holy God? In some ways, this is the definitive question for Israel, for their entire history. And it should be the definitive question for us. That the answer to the question that God gives Moses when he's up on the mountain is what's known as the sacrificial system. I would love to unpack the entire system for you. It's, it's complex, it's beautiful, I love it, but that would be a, a whole lot of extra time. Let me just give you the heart of how it worked. That the priests of the people would represent the people in God's presence. They would be the only ones who could go into God's presence and they would offer sacrifices. There would be animals that would be given to die in the place of the people. They would symbolically pay the price for sin and cleanse the people from their guilt. And that way, people could still live in proximity to the holy God. Now, that doesn't mean that people could just kind of walk into the most holy place. Yeah, I've done my sacrifice. I'm going to just come have a chat with God. Basically, what it meant is that they could still live down the street and God wouldn't annihilate them. Sacrifices, in some ways, were just kind of a placeholder. They were a pointer to the true solution that had to come one day if people were actually going to live with God. That, That final solution arrived with the coming of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Jesus made a way for sinful people to be cleansed, to be truly clean from sin. The Holy Spirit made a way for sinful people to be changed, to be transformed. If you want to live with a holy God, you need to be cleansed and you need to be changed. The the way Jesus cleanses us is by becoming the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus, when he went to the cross, he took on all of our sin and all of our uncleanness and he paid the price that we couldn't pay so that he could cleanse us. And when he did that, the barrier between us and God was broken. When Jesus died, the curtain that was there in the most holy place that separated the people from the presence of God, those cherubim that were guarding the way into Eden, broken too. And we finally had access to God. We were made clean so we could go in his presence. Jesus paid it all. And what this means is that there is nothing you can do and there's actually nothing you need to do to cleanse yourself. The the only question is simply this, will you let Jesus cleanse you? Will you trust him enough, surrender to him and say, I want you to clean me so that I can go into the presence of a holy God. Jesus cleanses us and then the spirit comes in to change us. This This is so incredible. When we surrender to Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God actually comes to live inside us. No longer is there a building that acts as the temple or the tabernacle. There is no place, no physical place that is the house of God because God's people have become the temple. The Holy Spirit has come to live in us. And here's where this gets so incredible. By the Spirit coming to live in us, he actually changes us. He gives us a new heart and he solves the problem that was the weakness of the law. That the law was so good at giving a picture of this is what it would look like to fulfill God's purpose. This is what uh, goodness and holiness and, and life in his presence would look like. But it didn't deal with the main issue. The real problem 
was the fact that our hearts are so busted by sin, we never want the right thing. We're, we're always looking in the wrong direction for, for something that will satisfy us, but it's not working. And so what the Spirit does is transform us so we want the things that we should want. With God's power inside of us, we can actually become holy the way God is holy. We can actually be freed from our sin. We can actually learn to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. And so here's the question I want to ask you. Is there an area of your life right now that you need to open up and surrender and say, Holy Spirit, I need you to change me. Something you've been holding back from. Something you've said, I don't want you to go there. But you're saying now, I need you to transform me. Say to Jesus, I need to make you, you to make me clean. And Spirit, I need you to change me so that I can live with a holy God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would do exactly that. That you would cleanse us and that you would change us. God, there are probably some people here who have never actually done that. They've never actually prayed that prayer. And so God, that, that's what we want to do. If, if you're, you're listening to this and you're hearing this and saying, I've never done that, pray this along with me. God, I, I want you to cleanse me. I want to be able to come into your presence and I know that I don't deserve that. I've done things and failed to do things that should keep me completely away from you. Being in your presence would annihilate me, God. But I need you to cleanse me and forgive me. Jesus, I trust you to be my rescuer and savior. I can't clean myself up. I need you to do it. Jesus, save me. I surrender to you. And then pray to the Holy Spirit. Spirit of God, come and live in my life. I don't want to be the same person I am. Set me free from sin. I can't do it myself. I need your power to come into me, to transform me, to be the sort of person who reflects what God is like. God, thank you that you made a way when there was no way, that you rescued and saved me so that I could be transformed. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.